right, First Peter chapter 4 is where we're at. And last week we uh, focused on the idea um, of the spirits in prison, how they were Jews who were under the law. And then the dead that we see here in chapter 4, we went into chapter 4 a little bit, were the, uh, they were the dead. That was the way they were described because they lived according to the flesh. That was how they did everything. That was how they judged everything, living according to the flesh. And let me just, I want to point this out too. I forgot to point this out last week. Don't ever mistake the fact that some of our laws that are biblical, don't mistake that for like being spiritual. Okay, because for example, you don't have to be saved to not like people stealing from you, murdering from you, committing adultery with your wife. Do you know lost people don't like that stuff happening to them too? So uh, we do have, you know, even uh, very wicked societies and godless societies have always had laws against those things. But at the end of the day, um, and, and that's the only thing that's restrained a lot of people from doing those things is fear of you know, earthly punishment, repercussions. And, but uh, as Christians, you know, obviously we shouldn't need those things. You know, those things shouldn't be what stop us. It shouldn't be because it's against the law that we don't steal. It should be because it's against God's law that we don't steal. And so we showed how the context of the entire passage is about living godly lives and not living like Gentiles who just live according to their flesh. That's been the theme pretty much of this book. Peter, he's, he admonishes them in chapter 3 not to waste their time suffering because of sin. There's no profit in your suffering that you go through because of your sin. Jesus already paid for your sins, so you're not accomplishing anything. You're not shortening your time in purgatory. There is no purgatory. You're not you know, working your way to heaven because you can't work your way to heaven. If you're saved, it's because Jesus already paid for your sins. So if you suffer here on this earth because of your sin, that's all you're doing is suffering here on this earth. And it's just not necessary. It's not profitable. So we need to try to avoid that. And so if we're going to suffer, then let it be for righteousness sake, because then you'll receive a reward. That is actually profitable. And so it was pointed out also in that in the last chapter how that because of what Christ accomplished for us, we now have the ability to be victorious over sin. And something that any pastor should do, something that Paul uh, taught us to do too, is to remind Christians to maintain good works. That's exactly what Paul preached. That's what Peter preached. Works profit nothing when it comes to earning salvation, but works are very profitable to other people. And Titus 3.8 says, This is a faithful saying, And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So even though we believe in a salvation that is completely without works, 100% without works, as saved people, once you get in this church and you convince us you're saved and you become a part of this church, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to preach on good works all the time. And we're going to constantly affirm that you all do some good works. And if you don't do some good works, we're going to be like, what's wrong with you? You, know, you need to do some good works. It's time to get right with God. In fact, you know what we're going you know to teach you to do after you get saved? And after you get in this church, we're going to teach you to repent of your sin. Now, some people are so hardcore against repentance of sins for salvation, they don't even believe in repentance of sins after they get saved. And 
and, and they live by that too, and they prove it every day with their behavior that they don't believe in repenting of sins. Listen, I believe very strongly in repenting of sins. And look what it says in verse 1. It says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Now, what would we call ceasing from sin? Well, we'd call it repenting of sins. Okay? Now, I get it. Nobody, okay, it, you know, and this is what people do. Whenever they get triggered and they hear that phrase, repent of sins, they start telling us what we mean. Okay? They'll tell you what you mean. They'll tell you what that preacher really means. And it's, and it's usually false. Okay? And one thing they'll bring up, nobody can repent of sins in the sense of never sinning again. Okay? And obviously, yeah, nobody can do that. And I don't believe that Peter is telling us to do that. But you know what we can do? We can make a conscious choice and a conscious effort to no longer live according to the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit and to serve God and to say, you know what? I'm done with that old life. I'm going to start following a new way of life. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to commit my life to God. That right there, you know, and that's a decision that you have to make. And it's one that you have to make every day. And, and, you know, if you want to call that repenting of sins, I mean, I guess that's fine. Uh, you know, just be clear about what you mean. And, and, you know, and don't feel bad when clowns want to tell you what you mean when you say that. But right here, Peter's just showing that, you know, we need to cease from sin. Stop living a life that's all about the uh, flesh and the lusts of men, but to the will of God. And so hopefully that's what you're doing today. Now, don't even try to tell me that any of you ever don't mess up a little bit, backslide a little bit, okay? Because we all do. And thank God we've got an advocate, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us and we, and we need him every day. But you know what? Hopefully when it comes to your life and your goals, your desire, your mission, hopefully it's to do the will of God rather than the will of your flesh. And I get it. Our flesh is always there. It's, it's a pain in the neck. It's going to be until Jesus Christ comes back. But there should be something in you telling you, I want to do God's will. And hopefully you're saying no to that, this flesh on a regular basis. Amen. We all mess up and sometimes we do. We tell it yes when we shouldn't, but we should be committed to living according to the will of God. Now the lost, the Gentiles... They live according to the lust of the flesh. That's, that's, their, that's their driving force. That's their motivator. Whatever their flesh desires. But hopefully, you all say, you know what? No, I'm going to put on Christ. And you know, chances are, some of you, you know, some of you tonight probably just really wanted to be here because you love church that much. But some of you probably had to put on Christ. Okay? Now, don't tell me, you know, what your motivation was. And, I, and I'm not going to, you know, sometimes... I, you know, most of the time, I'm ready to go to church. I do. I enjoy going to church. I enjoy preaching. But sometimes, I got to put on Christ. Now, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I, I didn't come to church because I don't want to be fake. Well, really. So, what, what does that mean? You can't come to church unless you're perfect? Uh, you know, you can't, you know, you, you can't come to church without letting everyone know all the problems that you're having right now. 
Listen, everybody's got issues. Everybody's got stuff going on. And there are, there's going to be many times in your life when the only reason that you're at church is because you're putting on Christ. Meaning, I don't want to be here. I don't feel like being here, but I know the Lord wants me here, so I'm going to do it. There's going to be a lot. Sometimes I feel like doing the right thing. Sometimes I feel like going soulling. I'm glad to be out going soulling. I'm enjoying going soulling. Sometimes I'm just put, I'm trying to put on Christ. And I'm just, I'm telling my flesh, no. I don't feel like it today, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, and hope, hopefully, uh, you, you have that desire and you should. So, uh, this, that, this life that I now have in, in, you know, the eternal life that God gave me, the spirit that he has given me, it enables me to do the will of God instead of the will of my flesh. Okay. The lost do not have this. And that's why, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when we see some of the things that we see. They don't have the spirit of God in them. Verse three says, for the time past of our life, may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Now, I think this verse right here is more evidence that he's talking to Jewish believers because the Jews did do everything that the Gentiles did. We watch that over and over again in the Old Testament, but yet God was far more upset with them than he was the Gentiles. Because of the simple fact that they knew better. They, they knew better than that. And he referred it to as, you know, that will of the Gentiles. You know, we, we were caught up in that. We did those things like they do. But, you know, we shouldn't be that way anymore. We've got the Spirit of God. And so, um, verse 4 says, Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. So think about it. Because they didn't sin like the, the Gentiles did, they thought you must be evil. There must be something wrong because you're not riotous. Because you know, you're not reveling like they are. There must be something wrong with you. And isn't it amazing how the world thinks the worst about us just because we seem to be different? And isn't it true they're really the intolerant ones that are out there? And they do, they get really upset. And then what do they do too? And you know what? The world's not the only one that does this too. Christians are kind of the worst about this sometimes. But whenever you just don't do something, if you're against something that other people do, okay, now what do they call you, uh, you know, in, in the, well, I guess they call you the same thing in the world as they do in church. They call you a holier than thou, right? A goody two shoes. Uh, what are some of the names they call people when they try to be godly? Oh, you're just trying to be spiritual. Well, yeah, I am. I'm just trying to be spiritual. I, you know, I'm not, but I'm trying to be. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But when we do, whenever we, you know, refrain from sins, it's a reminder to everyone else that these things are sinful and we kind of ruin everybody's fun. That's why, again, when people are drinking, they want you to drink with them. Why? When people know that you shouldn't be getting drunk, you shouldn't be acting like a fool. But, you know, it's okay if we're all doing it, Right? Hey, if we all look bad, it's fine. You know, it's okay. It's okay when you stink if everybody stinks, right? Because then nobody notices. So that's why, you know, we have so many people, they're not content to just do their own thing. They're not content to just do their own sin. They've got to get you doing it too. And then if you're not doing that, you know what you're, when, when you're not doing the things that they do, when you're not participating in those sins, you're shining a light on their sin. And the Bible says men love darkness rather than light 
because their deeds were evil. You're, you're ruining their fun. And so instead of them just getting convicted and admitting they're wrong, you know what they do? They end up trying to find something and they speak evil of you. And you say, well, no, that's not why. Yeah, that's exactly why. That's why they went after Jesus the way he did. I mean, think about it. What did Jesus ever do that could have even been perceived as a sin? And that is nothing. Because there was no sin, what he did that was so bad was he preached against them. He revealed their sin to them. And that right there is why they hated him so much. And so us, did you know, did you, know you can preach to people? You can preach against their sins without even opening your mouth. Just by refraining from those things. Just by not doing those things. I mean, I've had people that I've worked with, I, you know, I never had to tell them I don't cuss. They just figured it out. Why? Because I didn't react the way they, they did. I didn't, I didn't do things in the same way, and, and they wondered why. Everybody else acts this way. Everybody else says these things. Why aren't you doing that? And, you know, I, I, you know I'd, res- I'd respond. You know, I've had people, too, uh, you, know, they've, you know, they've pointed out even just some of the language that I don't use from the pulpit that some people do. It's like, and it's like it bothers some people because I'm thinking maybe they must know they probably shouldn't be talking that way. But I'm not saying anything about it. I'm just not doing it just because I don't feel right about it. And just that right there will get you labeled holier than thou, goody two-shoes, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of like the Gentiles. They speak evil against you. And so, uh, verse 5 says, Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? So the ones that are speaking evil about us are going to give account to Christ because he's going to judge the living and the dead. Now, this is, a, this is what we need to understand about this passage, too. There is judgment coming for the saved, and there is judgment coming for the lost. And that's kind of a, a theme that we're going to see in this passage. And I want to point out some things about this, too, because uh, the preterist crowd likes to pull some weird things out of this chapter. And I'm going to show you uh, how wrong it is what they're trying to do. And it's, a, it's uh, the, the way people just randomly pull things out of First and Second Peter to teach weird doctrine is astounding to me. Like what we saw last week with the spirits in prison and the dead, where they just leave the context behind, zero in a verse, and kind of take what they want from it. And I want to point some of this out to you uh, because this will help us when it comes to our interp- interpreting of the Bible. But it says, uh, you know, who shall give an account is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached unto them that are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, this here is more proof that, uh, I'm going to kind of give more proof in this, that the dead is referring to the Gentiles. Because it's saying here, there's a judgment coming of the quick and the dead. There's a judgment coming on the house of God that we're going to see later. And there's a judgment that's going to come on the world that we're going to see later. And right here, it says, for this cause was the gospel preached to the dead. Okay, What's the cause? Well, the gospel, it's good news, right? But you got also, there's also bad news in there too. The bad news is that we're sinners and that we're on our way to hell. The bad news is this life that we've been living, these sins that we have been committing are worthy of death. And they're, they're worthy of hell. 
And so the thing is, if we're going to be judged according to that, it is just a righteous thing with God to warn people about it and to let them know that judgment is coming. And so this is being preached to the quick and the dead. Why? So they can avoid that judgment. So they can get saved. And because God has always intended to judge this world, we see in the book of Jude, it refers to Enoch, who prophesied how the Lord is going to come with, with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on the ungodly. So judgment on the ungodly is something that has been prophesied from the very beginning that God knew was coming. And so God preached the gospel to these to the dead. And you know, at the end, I, I don't think God necessarily has to do that. That's just part of the goodness of God. That's a good thing. You know, thank God he did get let the gospel get to us and gave us a place of repentance. Thank God, thank God for that so we can avoid that. And so since the, the dead, since the Gentiles were also going to be judged, that gospel was preached to them so they could live according to God in the spirit. And then they could avoid that judgment. And so God in his love and mercy, instead of just severely judging the Gentiles for their sins, he did like he did with Nineveh, and he gave them an opportunity for repentance. And that's what's going on right now, folks. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God could be 100% just and just bring the hammer down on this world right now and judge everyone. But you know what he's doing? He's given us a chance for repentance. The fact that we are still here proves that you know there's still there's still hope for people. And what we've got to be doing is we've got to keep preaching to the dead. We've got to keep preaching to these people because they're going to be judged for their sins. But if we can get the gospel to them, you know what? They can, they can be saved. They can be revived spiritually. And they can be spared that judgment. So verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Now, what do we mean with this phrase, you know, the end of all things is at hand? Okay? Because isn't something at hand, doesn't that mean it's imminent? Doesn't that mean it could happen at any time? And he says here, the end of all things is at hand. Now, what the preterist crowd likes to do, they try to use this to prove that final judgment was real close. I mean, I, I don't know what the date of First Peter was. Uh, some of the things I read said it was in the 60s, uh, you know, shortly before 70 AD. Some had it after 70 AD. I, I really don't know for sure. Um, I don't think it makes sense it was after 70 AD because I'm pretty sure, according to history, Peter died before that took place. But, uh, you know, don't quote me on that. I don't know for sure. But what they'll do is they'll say, because of the fact he said the end of all things is at hand, that proves everything has to be almost over. So this judgment that he's talking about here, this judgment that must begin at the house of God, it's referring to the house of God, meaning the temple of God, therefore 70 AD. I'm going to show you that is not the case at all. Because, uh, you know, the preterists, they, do, they, they like to act like everything just happened in the first century. But, you know, we can't just take a phrase like this and just attach our own definition and run with it. You, you can't do that. Because um, some so they, they think he's saying it because the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent. But we should never, what we should never do in our Bible study 
is point to something vague like that, a vague statement that does not give us details and then insert our own details. Okay? Now, we can speculate sometimes, but we can't create new facts. Because Peter, he also could have made this statement because of the fact that they were in the last days, weren't they? We've established that already, that they were in the last days during that time. And it would not be inappropriate for him to refer, not necessarily to the rapture, which is what we want to talk about all the time. I was talking with somebody about this today. Think about this. We all make, we act like everything in Bible prophecy, that the focal point is the rapture, right? The catching away, okay? Of those that Paul said, we who are alive and remain. Now, let me ask you, what percentage of people who are going to participate in that event of the coming of Christ are going to be the alive and remain? We are talking tiny fraction of a percent. Most people are going to participate in the form of the resurrection that happens at that same time. So the thing is, that catching away, that applies to uh, you know, very, a very small number of people you know, in comparison to the big picture. Most of us are going to experience this in the resurrection. You say, nope, I believe we're gonna, I'm going to be one. I'm going to be here for the rapture. I believe it's going to come in my lifetime. Listen, I'm 41. I've been hearing that my whole life. And a lot of the people I heard saying that are dead and in heaven. And they are not going to be raptured alive. They're going to get, be resurrected from the dead and they'll be caught up. But that's how they're going to experience it, through the, re, through the resurrection. So we make anything about the coming of Christ, about the last things, we make it all about that one single event. But it's really more about the judgment that's coming. It's more about the resurrection. And so, um, you know, the final judgments coming you know, and being at hand, you know, he could be saying that they're at hand because of the fact, in reality, they're kind of the next thing, aren't they? I mean, it's like the next big thing since we're in the last days. I get it. There's some certain prophecies and stuff we're all expecting to see, but those are the big things that have been prophesied from the very beginning, these judgments. And we do. We, I feel like these things are at hand. I feel like final judgment is at hand. And so um, some might say it wasn't at hand because it still hasn't happened yet 2,000 years later, but that's why Second Peter 3, 8 is important that we're going to see in a few weeks where he said, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. During Peter's time, Peter was alive when it transitioned from the old covenant to the new covenant because they were now in the new covenant. Peter recognized the fact we're in the last days. Therefore, we are in that time period. We are in that, uh, that age where God is going to bring judgment to the world. Now, Peter didn't know when it was going to happen. Peter had no idea when it was going to happen. But he, and so that's why while he talked about it like it could happen in his day, he also said, be not ignorant of this. One day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So the thing is, when Peter, when Peter said these things, the end of all things is at hand, and today, when we say the exact same thing, I think we're both right because we are living in the same age as Peter. Let me ask you, what has changed, prophetically speaking, since the time of Peter? 
Nothing. Isn't that why we preach the New Testament? Isn't that why we use these epistles to tell you all what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live? Why These things are 2,000 years old. Why are we still using them? Why are we still preaching them? You know why? Because nothing's changed since then. Things are still the same. All things continue as they were. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to wait for the coming of Christ exactly like they were in that day. And so uh, don't let the preterists take that phrase there and run with it. The, the, based on uh, the way futurists teach, based on just the facts of what's happened and almost 2,000 years later, doesn't change anything and actually makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and I'm glad Peter put 2 Peter 3, 8 in there. That helps us a lot. So, um, so, when we, so when we go back and when we're looking at the New Testament epistles, you know, we just need to ask, what has changed to make these passages obsolete? Nothing. And that's why, you know, that's why we still do the Great Commission. Oh, that was a command for 2,000 years ago. But we're still in the same age. We're still in the last days. It's still the day of salvation. So we're going to keep this going until Jesus Christ comes back. We're going to keep preaching these epistles, hopefully the exact same way they preached them back then. And if any updates need to happen, we'll let Jesus give us those updates when he shows up on earth. Until then, same, this, we're doing it the same way. So yes, when Peter said the end of all things is at hand, I believe he was right because he was in the last days and we are still there. It's taken a lot longer than I want it to take. I think it's taken a lot longer than Peter wanted it to take. But it's not according to our will. It's according to God's will. So hopefully that, make, hopefully that makes sense. So um, I would interpret 1 Peter 4.7 identically the way they interpret it back when those first people got it. I'd do it the exact same way. Nothing has changed. We are still in the same situation. So verse 8 says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, remember last week I, I mentioned this too, how you know we all like to figure out those tough passages, right? The spirits in prison, we like to argue about those things. When it comes to end times and eschatology, we all have our strong opinions and you know, we are always more right than everybody else and everybody else is dumb because of it and if they worked as hard as we did and studied as much as we do, you know, they would be as enlightened as we are and uh, you know, we'll make a really big deal about that stuff. I mean, we will create these rules and scenarios that puts us at the top, everyone else on the bottom because we're right on eschatology or whatever. But you know what Peter said? Peter said... Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. You know, there's a lot of people that have got their eschatology right, but they don't have their love for the brethren right. I mean, I mean, they're fighting. I mean, churches fighting all the time, can't get along, hating on each other, rejoicing, rejoicing when people are thrown out for their sins. When this says charity will cover the multitude of sins, I mean, listen, I can't imagine going to a church where people are always watching me, waiting for me to slip up so they could tell on me to the preacher and I can get thrown out of the church. I think some people like watching that. I, I, I'll never understand that. I'll ne- but they're right, on, they're right on eschatology. They go soul winning. They love those souls. They hate their brothers. 
<laughs> but they but they but they love those souls. There's something wrong with that, folks. This is above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Hey, and again, I don't understand this concept of people who supposedly love the law so much but can't get along with God's people. Most of what we see in the Bible about just, you know, when it comes to things in the church, it's about looking out for each other, caring for each other. Yes, we care about lost souls too. Of course we care about lost souls. But there should be something special between the brethren. There should be something special. And, you know, and that charity, it's going to cover a multitude of sins. And I don't believe that's telling us that, you know, we cover up sins or we just, you know, let things go that need to be dealt with. That's not the case at all. Okay? This is about... Uh, this is just, we need to have a strong love and you know what? It's going to cause us just to overlook things. If somebody, you know, it's, it's a sin to be annoying, but you know, there's some stuff we could probably just put up with. You know, it's, you know, the, you know, just loving people in spite of their imperfections. So we can all find something about somebody, but you know, if you love them, you overlook it or you just, or you put up with it. You know, if you love them, you understand, you know what? Yeah, they got this problem, but it's not my problem to fix. And you need to have that attitude like I do. Some people, they get annoyed when they hear the kid crying in the store or the restaurant. I find it comforting because when I hear that kid screaming, it just feels good to know it's not mine and it's not my problem. Because I have been there many times when it was my kid and it was my problem. So when I hear those things, it's like, I don't have to deal with it. And, you know, and I'm not trying to be cruel or anything, but it, you know, it, it makes me feel pretty good about it. And, and you know what? Hopefully you've had to deal with enough of your own problems. Okay, maybe you don't deal with any of your problems. And, and you know, you're too busy dealing with everybody else's problems. But if you're somebody who's actually dealing with your own problems like you're supposed to, when you see other people having problems, you just be like, oh, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. But it's amazing how much some people want to deal with other people's problems. No, it, it, once you get some of your own problems or realize, and, and you have them, you just might not realize it. You're not going to want to waste your time on other people's problems. You know, you'll just you'll have charity, you know, charity. You'll have compassion. And I, I've been there. I've been on the plane before, where there was a you know a baby crying and stuff. And you know what? When I'm in a situation like that, and and I, I try to be very understanding i try to act not annoyed at all because again i've been the one stressed out because you know you're worried you're upsetting everybody and all that kind of stuff and you know it's it's amazing how some people's attitudes are towards other people and their problems it's not supposed to be that way amongst christians so uh so we we uh verse nine says use hospitality one to another without grudging okay now don't when it comes to things like this using hospitality okay that's a good thing but you know what did you know you can do the right thing and do it grudgingly you know you could like giving you can give to the lord and that's good that you gave but god doesn't want us doing it grudgingly god doesn't want us doing of necessity god loves a cheerful giver and when it comes to hospitality you know i would feel really bad if you invited me over to your house I was like, man, I really appreciate you inviting me over. I was like, well, I didn't really want to, but the Bible says use hospitality, so I did it. Now, you know, now I'm not blessed anymore. Well, you know, I'm glad you're obeying the Bible, but uh, you know, I wish you liked me. I, I wish 
I wish you wanted me to come over. That would have actually made me feel good. And so we've got a lot of Christians. That's how they do life. That's how they obey the commands of God. Well, I got to do this stuff. And you're not, if you're not doing it with the right attitude, you know what? You're just not even really doing it. It's just, it's kind of pointless. And so, you know, you say, well, I just don't feel this way. I don't like people. Well, ask God to change your heart. Ask God to change your heart and, you know, help you stop thinking about yourself, get you to start thinking about other people because, you know, people need that hospitality. People need, you know, grace. People need love. They need all these things. So don't just go through the motions. Verse 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And the Apostle Paul talked a lot about spiritual gifts. And when the Apostle Paul talked about spiritual gifts, you know where he talked about using them? In the church, among God's people, to edify God's people. And so whatever that gift is you have, Whatever special talents and abilities God has given you, then you know what, you know who the first people you should be using them on? People in this church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I think we ought to, you know, think about others. You know, what about doing things for those who can't do anything in return? That is another thing too. You should do that too. But it's like some people they make it a point, and I've gone to church with people like this before. It's like they make it a point to be nice to everybody and love everybody, except for the people in the church. And I just, I I don't understand that mentality. I think you like going out and doing all those things and taking pictures of yourself doing all those things so you can show everyone in the church and on social media just how loving you are. I think you do those things because deep down, you know you don't love people very much. And so you're going to go do these photo op type things. You know, you're going to do something that will help you get your name on a plaque or get you some kind of award or something. So you can give the illusion that you're a charitable person, but you're not, convinced, you're, you're not convincing anybody. You're not fooling anybody on this. We need to be using these gifts for each other. It says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We need to keep what we do ultimately and primarily about God. Now, we can take it this too far where it's all about people to the point we start disobeying God. That, you know, you can said when it comes to everything, you can take it too far in multiple directions. That's what the Bible always says. Turn not to the right hand or to the left hand. And you've got churches that are so focused on people that they forget about God. You cannot do that. We always have to be obedient to God. But our motivation when it comes to blessing people should be to please God. And so understand, because uh, you know, when, you know, when the, your motivation to please others is that you're trying to please God, then you know what? You're not going to disobey God. You're, you're not, you're not going to do that. And so uh, you know, the way we please God is by doing things for other people. When we give that cold cup of water in his name, when we do things to the least of these, his brethren, we're doing it to him. And so, you know, be a blessing to people that right there that shows our love for God. And you got a lot of people, they talk about how much they love God. But if you're not doing things for other people, you're not doing anything for God. 
Whatever it is, you know, we, can, we, we don't have the ability to go into a temple anymore to offer up sacrifices or to offer up incense that's a sweet-smelling savor to God. You know what? The things that we do now that are equivalent to that are done for other people. And God receives it just like he did back then. God's pleased by it just like he was back then. And so if we really do have a love for the Lord, if you really are thankful for the salvation that he gave you and all that he's done for you, you know what you need to do? You need to go find some people and you need to go bless the daylights out of those people. You need to go do something for them. And when you do that, boy, you're going to please God. And the more joy you can bring to that person, because again, it's not just going through the motions. If you're just going to go through the motions, I'm just going to go do something nice. You know, I hate them, but I love God. No, you're going to want to make sure you're not just going to go through the motions of just giving them something. Well, I'm just giving you this $50 because I'm trying to please God. don't really care about you, but I love him. So here you go. Not going to work. No, you need to make them happy. You need to, you need to make them feel loved. And when you show them that love, God's receiving that. And God, God will be pleased when you do that. So, um, verse 12 says, beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. So it would appear that Peter knows something is coming and we can speculate on this and, you know, we can assume whatever, but he was probably just telling them to brace themselves for persecution because it was going on back then. Big time. They were dealing with persecution. And when a per- Christian gets persecuted, it's not really unique. It's actually, it's actually normal. It should be expected. Okay? We don't want to have a persecution complex. You know, we don't want to act like a victim. But at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised when things happen. It's not a strange thing. And it says in verse 13, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God rested upon you. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. So all of us are going to be thankful for the persecution once we meet Christ. No doubt about that. Then he goes on to And again, I'm, I want to show a theme here. Verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. No rewards for that kind of suffering. When we suffer for sin, no rewards. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Okay? Now, persecution does often make people feel ashamed. You know, it, it, it's, it's embarrassing. It can be embarrassing sometimes, you know, when, you know, you're reproached for the cause of Christ. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to lie. There's a part of me sometime that, you know, it's embarrassed when all of a sudden somebody finds out some of the stuff that's on the internet about me. It's like, what is all this? Uh, you know, and, and I've had people too. Just, you know, hey, what's this? All, what's this pumpkin stuff all about? And you know, and it's just like, you know, you know, it's a little embarrassing. Now, I'll tell you this: I'm not ashamed at anything I've done. You know, uh, I believe I've been blessed by that. I, you know, I, I believe uh, that you know that persecution resulted in a lot of great blessing for me. But you know. A lot of people, they see that kind of thing and they're afraid of that because it doesn't, you know, it looks bad when somebody goes to jail. It looks bad 
when a pastor gets arrested. It looks bad when there's negative news reports, all that kind of stuff. But you know what? There's also there's rewards for it. And so we don't we we can't let them shame us, folks. We can't we can't run from that kind of thing. We just need to face it, deal with it, understand we're going to get rewards for it. So verse 17 says, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? Now, some preterists have tried to act like this is about 70 AD and that house of God. I don't believe that. Okay. This judgment that's coming for the house of God. What is it? Well, what is the house of God? It says in 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and ground of the truth. That doesn't sound like the temple in Jerusalem, does it? It sounds like the church. Hebrews 10.21 says, And having an high priest over the house of God, and he's not talking about the temple. We know he's not talking about the temple there. If we you know, look at all the context of that, there's, there's no doubt about that at all. So what's this saying? Okay? What this is saying, he had said earlier how God's going to judge the living and the dead. God's going to do that. God's going to judge the saved first. And then after God judges those who are saved, God's going to judge the world. The world's going to get judged, and so that's why the gospel was preached to the dead, to give them a way out, to give them a chance. And so that's why we're seeing, too, this emphasis on not sinning, not suffering because of your own sin. Okay? You're going to be judged one of these days. There's no profit in suffering that comes from sinning, so you need to avoid this stuff as much as you possibly can. And then in verse, So then in verse 18, after he says, judgment must be at the house of God, says, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? So, now Peter, he doesn't lay out all the details of judgment in this letter. Chances are these people probably knew about it. They were well aware of these details. He probably talked to them about it. But they're not written here. So we can't, you know, we're going to have to look elsewhere to kind of get more details on this. But so many things that Peter preaches in this letter is exactly like what Paul preached. So I don't think it's out of line to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 where it says, But we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. And so we clearly, as saved people, are going to stand before God, and we're going to be judged one day. And you know what? It's not all, I don't think it's all going to be peaches and cream. Now, I can promise you this. If you're saved, when you stand before God, you're going to get through there. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to make it through there. Okay? And I personally believe that this judgment takes place after the rapture because that's when we'll receive our glorified body. We're going to be judged according to the things done in our body. So it makes sense. And I believe that's, kind of, I believe, uh, that's what we see in the Bible. Uh, I'm not going to take time to go into all the scriptures on that. But in 1 Corinthians 3.11, it says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation 
gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwelleth in you. So the foundation is Jesus Christ. And everyone who has Jesus Christ and has salvation, he got the foundation. Now here's a question. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to build on that? Hopefully you're building on that. And if you build on that foundation and your work is good, you know what? You're going to receive a reward because salvation is 100% free. So if you do any works after that, God doesn't take those works and say, you know what? I'm going to use that to help purchase your salvation you know, or to pay back for your salvation. No, because it's free. You know what those are? You get rewarded. You get rewarded because the works that we do as Christians, we receive rewards for those things. And so he says, though, if, you know, some people, though, they're going to suffer loss. All the work you did, it wasn't the right kind of work. You didn't do it with the right attitude, the right spirit, whatever. And it's all going to burn. You're going to suffer loss, but you're still going to be saved. Yet so is by fire. You're still going to get through it. And I, it just kind of reminds me of what Peter said when he says, um, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God and at first begin at us. What should the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So there's going to be a different result for those who do not obey the gospel of God. So we're looking for judgment to come for us. And while I'm just going to be honest, I'm not necessarily looking forward to it. I'm glad I'm going to get through it. I'm going to make it through it. I hope I've got some rewards. I don't know. I can only speculate on what it's going to be like. So I don't think it's going to be bad at all. Because salvation is free, blah, blah, blah. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Terror. That doesn't sound like peaches and cream. That doesn't sound like a walk in the park. That doesn't sound like a picnic. And I don't think they just threw all these passages in there about living godly just because they just felt like us doing that. I think we need to do that. I think we're going to be sorry if we don't do that. I think people who get saved and they don't do anything for God are going to greatly regret it one day. They're still going to go to heaven. And, and so judgment's going to begin with us. And boy, if it begins with us, what's going to happen to everybody else? Go read the book of Revelation. It's really bad. We won't even go into that tonight. It's going to be really bad. And so... Uh, so Paul, basically, you know, he says the same thing as Peter, making it clear that believers will survive judgment. But notice, we don't have anything to brag about. We may, we survive, our survival is because of Jesus. So we're mainly being judged not to see if we're going to go into heaven, but just to see if we manage to do anything in addition to what Jesus did for us so we can receive rewards. Salvation is free. So if we do works, we get rewarded. So uh, verse 19 says, Wherefore, let him that, them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. As believers, we've committed our souls to Christ for our eternal security, you could say. And when we got saved, we said, I'm not going to trust in my works to get me to heaven. I'm just trusting in Jesus Christ. 
So if you want to say you committed your soul to Christ when you got saved, I don't think that's a, a wrong thing to say. Uh, I think I think that's what we've done. But here it's talking about committing the keeping of your souls to him and well-doing as unto faithful creator. This is about making that commitment to live for him. This doesn't determine whether we're saved or not. This is how he wants us to live. That we need to commit our souls to him. All of us. Our life should be committed to the cause of Christ. Our life should be committed to him. We ought to be doing all that we can for him. And that that's the motivation. That is the theme. This theme has continued to be one of exhorting the brethren to good works. And here in the end of the chapter, he does exactly what Paul does. And he persuades them to do good. And he uses the terror of the Lord as motivation. And so when we see that judgment must begin at the house of God, this isn't so much like trying, Peter, he's not trying to like lay out things for prophecy. It has nothing to do with what happened in 70 AD. It's just the fact that we are going to be judged. God's going to judge us before he comes down at the battle of the great day of God Almighty and he judges the world. God's going to, God's going to deal with us first. And it's probably not going to be fun, but at least we're going to get through it. And boy, what about everybody else? that didn't obey the gospel. They're in big trouble. They're in really big trouble. And so what we need to do, we need to take advantage of this time where God is being merciful and long-suffering and see how many more people we can get pulled out of the fire. See how many more people we can get in the ark. Just like in the days of Noah, we are in a time of God's long-suffering. He's given people this opportunity and they better take advantage of it. Judgment's coming for the quick and the dead. We're going to survive it. They're not. So let's get the gospel to them. Let's pray. So dear Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture and uh, the comfort, the challenges that are there. And Lord, I pray, Lord, above all things, we'll have fervent charity among each other. I pray that we'll commit uh, our souls and our lives to following you, that we will cease from sin and Lord, we, I know none of us are ever going to be perfect, but Lord, help us to uh, just have a renewed commitment and just to make a real effort and to prioritize uh, you know, your things over the will of our flesh. And I pray you'll help us to make a difference and uh, help us to reach as many people as we can with the gospel for, uh, before your return. In your name we pray. Amen.